We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Okay. Hello, everyone. What a lovely hot day. Lovely. Lovely. We're going to melt later, but it's lovely now. Right, so I've had a topic on my mind for a little while that I've not been quite sure how to, how to explore, but I thought I'd give it a crack, mainly because I was chatting to um, Elliot Baden, and he said he'd be interested in it. So actually, me and Elliot prepared this together, and so I'm taking full credit for everything, um, but he was part of the, the process. Is, have I got my time like in the right place? Is that right? Higher. Yeah? Okay. Great. Okay, so, evidence for the resurrection. Why this subject? Tim Keller, a preacher from New York, told a story about uh, a young man in New York that he spoke to. And the young man said, it's hard to believe in Jesus because all of the evil and suffering I'm experiencing, besides there's a lot about Jesus which feels offensive to me. <coughs> Tim replied to him, so does that mean he, he wasn't raised from the dead? The man said, well, that's, that's not the issue. And Tim replied, but it should be. If he wasn't raised from the dead, who cares what he says? But if he was raised from the dead, you've got to explore everything that he says. The resurrection is absolutely central to our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty in your sin. If anyone knows, this, knows this, the uh, story, Jesus Christ Superstar, it ends with Jesus' death. And it leaves you thinking that Jesus was a martyr for a cause. He was a liberal before his time, a great moral teacher, and it was just a sad way to end. And the, the challenge that I had in bringing this message, I'm thinking, I'm preaching to the choir. We, there's not many people that would say that they don't believe in the resurrection. But there is a danger that if we don't let the truth of the resurrection permeate into us, that we can almost box it in some different ideas, such as it being a, a bit of a myth. So even if it isn't true, it's a good story. It's got good general principles that will help you get through life. Or we might say it's, it's more of a personal experience thing. It's a, a feeling rather than an objective reality, an event that occurred in history. The danger of that is if it only lives as a feeling, then what if you feel differently from day to day? I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, it's sunny, it's great. I don't think Hitler ever really caused the Second World War. You, you, you don't have that option. It's not based on your feelings. It was a historical event that actually took place. Or we can treat it as a metaphor. Actually, a, a preacher, a pastor that was interviewed in America said, well, the key thing is to remember that 
kind of Jesus' example lives on. It just would not come down on the fact that the resurrection actually happened. Just a little bit of fuzziness in this just saps the power out of the message. And so what I want to provide for you today is an opportunity to meditate on the resurrection. Because when you meditate on something, you look at it from different angles. And I know I've never really looked at it from the facts before. So hopefully this can help you in that process. This here is a herald. So a, a Bible scholar called N.T. Wright came up with this, this phrase that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Good advice is something that, yeah, it would, it would do you well to kind of take it on board. Good news is something that has happened in history and because, it, because of it, the world is now different. This is a quote from one of his books. When Paul told people his good news, he didn't mean for them to say, well, that's interesting. I'll see if it's going to suit me or not. He wasn't inviting them to try a new way of thinking or living that would enable them um, to, to live differently or think differently. He was telling them that something had happened which had changed the world that the world was now a different place and he was summoning them to be part of that new, different reality. He was telling them that an event that would cause them to adjust their entire lives in order to come into line with where things were now. It isn't difficult to see how this worked out when the Roman heralds came into a city like Thessalonica announcing that a new emperor had been enthroned. They didn't mean he is a new sort of imperial experience that you might like and see if it suits you. They meant Tiberius or Claudius or Nero or whoever is the lord of the world. You are the lucky recipients of this good news. He demands your loyalty, your allegiance and of course your taxes. That's how the Roman good news worked. So can't we just... Can't we just kind of think it happened, believe it happened? Why do we have to do something? Yeah. Faith and reason go together. It isn't enough just to believe the events of the res resurrection happened, but not experience the resurrected Jesus in your life today. That, that would fall short of what God's got. But also, if you have an experience but you don't hold to the truth of what actually happened, that also undermines what the faith is. We need both an experience and to believe that it happened to really unlock the power. So, the resurrection actually happen. What two things do we need for that? Well, we need to know that Jesus died and that Jesus was alive again. Fairly simple. Now, there's lots of different quotes to use, but let me just use this one by Bert Ehrman, who is an avid critic of Christianity. Okay? So, he said, 
one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Okay? I could show you tons of others. This is one fact that we can all agree on. So the question was, what we've got to highlight is, was Jesus alive again? So I'm going to invite you to become historians. The key thing of a historian is to take the evidence and see which theory best accounts for all the evidence that's there. So let's have a quick practice. So imagine you've come into a scene where you've got a turned over um, stand. You've got uh, some broken glass in water. You've got half a fish and a cat with a grin on his face. <laughs> Theory one. There was a vase of flowers, the um, vase of flowers that a cat knocked over. Okay, so, okay, we've got the vase over, we've got the glass and the water on the floor. There's no flowers, but let's just skip over that bit. But why is there half a fish and why is the cat grinning? This is going to drive me crazy. Right. So let's try theory two. A burglar had snuck into the house. He came bringing his own glass of water that he was drinking. He dropped his glass of water on the floor and then he fed the cat a treat on the way out. Okay, no stand there. We'd got the glass of water. No half of a fish. But maybe that's why the cat's grinning. Okay, so let's try theory three. Yeah, you just, I'll just have to tell you each time. I think the battery might be dead. Right, so theory three. The cat climbed onto the stand and was trying to scoop a goldfish out of the fish bowl, um, managed to catch the fish in its mouth. She lost her balance, pulled the bowl off the stand. The cat and the fish and the stand all fell to the ground. The bowl smashed. The cat resettled to enjoy the half fish that was in his mouth. Now, that one, how do we do with that, Dave? That's, yeah, keep going. Okay, that fits. So we would say that's the best theory to match the evidence that we've got. Now, there's something else just before we get into looking at the evidence for the, for the resurrection. is Another thing that bothers historians is time. So the longer the time between when an, an event happens and when that account was written the more danger is that things could have been adapted over that time and get new interpretations. And you get the danger of the Chinese whispers. The more links in the chain, the more mistakes that can happen. So if, you, if it's taken a long time to write it down, how many people have had to pass that story on? And there's always a danger, and there is when it comes to the, to the scriptures, that could things have been exaggerated as part of a power play by later generations? Well, that's what Family Guy suggests. And so we're just going to look at their, their thing. And they're saying that Jesus, what Jesus did was exaggerated. Okay. 
na 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 was the story of Jesus exaggerated just to, just to get more people to follow him? Well, let's have a little look at that time frame. Let's, let's go to the next slide, Dave. How soon after the death of Jesus were they declaring the resurrection? Well, the first we have is the Gospel of Mark was, was written 40 years. Dave? And again. 40 years after the death of Jesus. So that's still within the lifetime of a lot, lot of people. But 1 Corinthians was written within 20 years after the death of Jesus. But there's actually a creed that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, which, which scholars would say was written within months to three years after Jesus dying. Now let's just put that in context. At another ancient figure that we don't really have much problem believing, um, Alexander the Great. From his death to when his story was written was 400 years. So we have a pretty good expectation that this stuff was actually recorded very quickly. And it even talks about, in the Bible, that we're even told there was 500 people that witnessed this, and most of them are still alive which is an invitation, go talk to them, go find out, see for yourselves. Right, now let's jump across to evidence for the resurrection. So we have here, evidence one, Jesus died. Evidence two, the disciples truly believed they'd seen a risen Jesus. And evidence three, that the opponents of Jesus had truly believed they'd seen him risen. Now by opponents I'm referring particularly to Saul who became Paul, who was trying to crush the, the Christian movement, and James, Jesus' brother, who thought that Jesus was mad during his ministry. So there's five theories that, that I've seen. I'm not even going to bother with the, f the fifth one, the least popular one, because that's the evil twin theory. So Jesus had an evil twin who decided to seize the moment of Jesus' death to appear, pretend and convince all these people that had spent so long with Jesus that he was Jesus, and then poof, he disappeared. So the next... Um, the next one is Jesus didn't actually die. He looked like he was dying, but he didn't actually die. But there is no account anywhere in history that anyone actually survived a crucifixion. And we've even seen that quote earlier to say that's not going to happen. Okay, so let's go across that first line. Okay, so next one. Jesus' Jesus' disciples stole his body. Okay, well, we're agreeing that he died, but... You know what? Liars make dreadful martyrs. And the disciples so believed what they'd seen, they went through some pretty gruesome experiences and deaths. So it wouldn't explain that. And it definitely wouldn't explain why the opponents would have supported it. So here's the, most, the second most popular theory. Still only 5% of scholars claim it, is the hallucination theory. So Jesus died but his disciples so wanted to see him alive that they actually saw him. Now let's just put aside that 500 people all hallucinated the same thing, which is pretty unusual. But why would someone that didn't want to see that Jesus was alive see him? So that doesn't explain the opponents. So therefore we get to the theory number one of the resurrection. That's the only theory that covers 
all these three pieces of evidence. Yet, most scholars still take the position, we just don't know what happened to Jesus. How can you come to that conclusion? Sherlock Holmes wouldn't allow you to come to that conclusion. Sherlock says, when you've eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The problem is, historians have a pre-commitment to naturalism. They didn't believe, they don't accept that miracles can happen. That doesn't represent the majority of this planet. At least 50% of people will claim to have experienced a supernatural occurrence. I say historians aren't doing their job. Your job is to apply which theory best matches the evidence. But if you dig a little deeper, you can realise, actually, there's some motivation for not wanting the resurrection to be true. Because there is implications to that. If I accept the resurrection happened, I've got to consider everything that Jesus said and did, not just the bits that I like. If I was to tell, if I went on Twitter and said that in January 2022, an alien spaceship landed in Goodmays Park and then buzzed off again, I would not expect to find a gathering, a following, who would be willing to re be rejected by their families, disadvantaged by their communities and places of work, and possibly be gruesomely executed. If my claim got any traction, some journalist would come to Goodmays and start interviewing the locals and look for evidence to prove or disprove my claim. In the same way, if the disciples were lying, Christianity would not have got off the ground. So, that's evidence for the resurrection. Now, let's just have a look. What does the resurrection mean according to the Bible? Well, there's plenty of stuff that we could find, but let me just start off with these, these four. I'm made right with God. Romans 4, verse 25. He was handed over to die because of our sins. He was raised to life to make us right with God. He made us right with God. His resurrection was so important. It couldn't just be his death that did this. Have you ever had like a ticket to get, to get into somewhere, like a football stadium, and you've just got that sneaky suspicion or wonder, like, is this an authentic ticket? Is it? I've not bought a fake ticket, have I? Well, when I'm going through the turnstiles to get into West Ham Stadium, I've got to put my ticket into a machine that reads it and opens the gate. That's when I know my ticket has been accepted, when I can pass through the gate. Jesus knew that his sacrifice was accepted by God because he passed through death and back to life again. And that sacrifice was for all of our sakes, that we can now be friends with God again. The sin that was separating me from God has been dealt with. I can be friends with God like I was originally designed. Another thing that the Bible says the resurrection means was death has no power over me. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 but Christ was indeed Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. Also says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Romans 6 says we're united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. That means whatever goes for Christ goes for us. If death couldn't hold him, it can't hold us. He was the first fruits, he was the prototype, and we will be like him. We don't have to fear death. The last great weapon of the enemy, we don't have to fear it, because that's what the resurrection has shown us. I'm given a living hope, 1 Peter 1 verse 3. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering and he points them back to resurrection. So what is that living hope? Hope that the suffering that we're now experiencing is temporary. It wasn't what God intended in the beginning. But through his death and resurrection it won't be what we face for eternity. In the meantime, my hope is that I can experience his presence in my suffering. My hope is that suffering can't separate me from the love of God. And my hope is that my inheritance is eternity in the presence of God. That can't be taken away. Finally, the Bible says, that the resurrection means that God has established a new king and launched a new kingdom. And we, we see that in the, kind of the language of the, the heralds in, in the Roman culture. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. The resurrection acted like a coronation for Jesus. He is the king and we are invited to be part of his new world order. So, that's what the Bible says, it, says the resurrection means. So how do we move our lives according to this? Well, I had a little thought about kind of four seasons that we might experience or four challenges that we might experience. Like, how do we look at that in the light of the resurrection? How do we live in the experience of the resurrection today? Well, despair. Those situations that look absolutely hopeless. Do you think that's how the disciples felt when Jesus died? Perhaps you've got a situation that looks completely hopeless. Maybe you'd placed a dream in your heart that feels like it's died. Maybe you've received an abuse that you think has damaged you irreparably. You know, he still empties tombs today. He still empties tombs today. As long as he lives, I will have hope. And he forever will live. We see that Jesus can walk through walls in his new body when, he come, when, he's, when he's raised. So why did they need to roll the stone out of the way? They didn't need to roll the stone out of the way. It wasn't for his sake. 
It was for the sake of his followers. To help them see, to help them believe, to help them not live in despair. Perhaps you need him to roll the stone out of the way so you can see that the thing that you thought had died has not died. Do you need help to believe the impossible? Look at the empty tomb. Identity is another thing that we can be challenged by. I have to make a name for myself. I don't know if it, for, for some of you young people just going through your exam periods, that sense of pressure. I've got to get the grades, to get the job, to get the money, to get the look that will make me somebody, to get that respect. How does that, how is that changed by the, by the resurrection? Well, God has been made king of all. God has made Jesus king of all. And if I choose to agree with God, it's a pretty strange thing to disagree with God. So if I choose to agree with God, I'm putting myself under his rule. So my basis comes, what pleases him? That's my first question. Not how do I make a name for myself. How do I make his name known? My identity is that I belong to him. How about suffering? I'm confused by pain. I'm experiencing pain and it's, and it's troubling me. What does the resurrection mean to that, say to that? The resurrection enables me to look beyond my suffering. Just like Jesus was be able to look beyond the cross to the joy that was set before him. Pain and suffering do not get the last words. That's what the resurrection means. If I live the way that my society tells me to live, which is maximise joy, minimise pain, if that was all my, what my life was about, then suffering still has the last word. It completely robs me of my purpose in life if I'm suffering. But if he is risen, that means that suffering cannot steal my purpose in life. In fact, it can be used for his purpose. Elizabeth Elliot said, suffering is never for nothing. And then we can look beyond it. Romans 8, 18. I consider that for our, for our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. How about fear? Particularly fear of failure. Put your hand up if you've just done your GCSEs. Anyone just done A-levels? Okay. Did they tell you, unless you, get your, unless you do well in the exams, your life is effectively over? Yeah. Did your teachers say that? Yeah. Teachers, put your hands up. <laughs> You're despicable. Despicable. <laughs> the empty tomb shows that the purposes of God cannot be held by death. They can't be held by exam results. But since Jesus is my king and my life is about serving my king, I want to prepare my body, 
my brain, my life to be a good servant for him. If he wants me to bring salvation to, the, to bankers, I want to be able to get the grades to get me to where he needs me to be. That's why I, I apply myself. Not to make a name for myself, not to give myself security. He's done that. He's given me security. He's given me name. But I want to be useful for him. That's why I apply myself. Next one, Dave. Back in March, I wrote something which I want to share again with you guys. Because it was my own journey of trying to understand how does current affairs that I'm facing and experiencing look different when you look through the lens of the resurrection. And so I'd been really troubled by what I was seeing happening in Ukraine at the time. So I'm just going to share this with you. And you might have different current affairs that you're facing, different things that are pressing on you. And I want you just to have an open mind to think, how do we look at this through the resurrection? As I've been tracking the news of the Russian invasion and the dreadful conditions ordinary Ukrainians have suddenly been thrown into, I have been racking my brain to synchronize what I read and see online with who I know Jesus to be and what he has done and what he is doing. I'm standing in Mayfield School singing songs while a nation is sheltering in basements. How do I reconcile this? So I find myself asking, am I out of touch with reality? I re-listened to a message by Tim Mackey, the co-creator of Bible Project, and found a few illustrations he used very helpful. In Wisconsin, where he was at college, you can have snow for half the year and it looks beautiful to begin with, but then it begins to turn grey and covers everything, and you begin to forget there was ever green before, and then there would ever be green again. But around March, the crocus flower appears. And suddenly it fills you with this hope that it won't always be this way. And though in April there might be another dusting of, of snow that covers the crocus, it melts quick. And you've seen the crocus now. Nothing can take that away. In 1968, in Israel, while clearing a section of land, developers came across an ancient box, and inside were the remains of someone who had been crucified. The trademark nail going through the ankle bone. You can see how it's bent because it probably hit a knot in the woods, and you can just imagine the excruciating pain while the man was impaled. But his death wasn't unique. When Rome sacked Jerusalem, 500 people a day were crucified. In this box were the remains of just another guy who was crushed by the machine. And then there was Jesus. He talked about a new kingdom. He caught the imagination. But then he was also murdered. Like so many before, evil seemed to triumph like always. But the empty tomb... It means something so striking. It proves that evil no longer reigns. It can't have its own way. And death itself has been issued its own death warrant. Pain and suffering are beginning to unravel and turn back on itself. Like the crocus flower in breaking forth in the middle of the snow, 
The empty tomb promises the world wasn't designed with suffering we see today. And we are heading towards a final destination where pain is merely a memory. And the promise is breaking out all over the place. We live in a now and not yet reality. The resurrection, the kingdom of Jesus was declared. Now everything is coming under his reign. There will be further snowstorms which seem to cover the crocus temporarily, but they can't undermine where creation is heading. I watch the news, I see another snowstorm. But the reality is the tomb is empty. No present evil can erase this glorious truth. We set our watches to eternity. We see allies in the West and beyond coming together in a common cause to force Russia to withdraw from Ukraine. This determination to defeat evil is clear, to defeat enemy is clear. If they're successful though, will they reinstate peace on earth? In Luke 2.14, angels proclaim peace on earth. But the peace they were promising wasn't to be achieved by defeating an enemy. No, God's plan was more radical than that. It would be achieved by overcoming enmity, hate. Hate towards God and therefore towards one another. This enmity was not the property of one side, but it resides in every human heart. Our very DNA is entangled inseparably with hatred. There's no way to tackle the infection without harming the host. There's no precision-guided weapon which could deal with the problem. Not only did enmity hold us, but we held enmity. We were addicted to enmity, even though it was destroying us. The only way, the only way, was for the Prince of Heaven himself to step out into the firing line. When he was vulnerably human, our hatred raced towards him. He took it into himself and pulled it to the grave with him. On the third day, he rose, but enmity didn't. So the empty tomb is a symbol of the reality that everything changed that day. We live in a world of a different order. We're no longer prophetic lovers of an abusive master that is hatred. God emptied himself of his honour. He came to us. He died for us. And now he invites us to rule with him. Jesus masterminded the great reversal. He took what we deserved and gave us what he deserved. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. So coming back to my original question, am I out of touch with reality? My answer is I don't think so. I believe the tomb was empty and therefore we live in a world under a different king. We are still taking place. There are still things taking place which seem to obscure the sight of his rule. But these things are temporary and in the grand scheme of things, there is nothing that can be done to me here and now which can ever separate me from what he's already done. I can't be snatched from his hands. There is a, face, a fate worse than death, and that's not knowing that the tomb is empty and that I have been reconciled with my loving Father. 
As Paul said, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I'm in touch with reality when I sing of what he's done. I've been reached by reality when I see what he's doing. And I embrace reality when I can boast of what he's going to do. We're privileged, not because we're not under attack, but because we know the tomb is empty. Let this knowledge fill you with joy. Let it bring over into expression when we're together. Let us share with those who have no idea. Let us spur each other on with our testimonies. Each story is evidence that he still empties tombs. Let us celebrate when we come together. Let the reality of the empty tomb motivate us into into actions. There are millions of people who are moved to respond to the needs of the Ukrainian. And many of you are also helping. Being here in Mayfield School Hall, singing together with you, is when I remember that humanity's greatest need has already been met. I must be reminded of this. I must hear your voices singing the truth. I must be touched by reality. Otherwise, I'm going to think it's my actions, a contribution that has solved something. So right now I sing. Right now I turn my eyes to him, the champion and perfecter of our faith. Right now I hear who he is. Because I will have the opportunity to respond to a need and I must do so in the reality of the empty tomb. The reality of the empty tomb has got to touch us. It's got to impact us. So after the the women had seen the empty tomb and heard that Jesus was now alive, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. I love the fear and great joy. It wasn't fear, then joy. It was fear and joy. How do you explain that? That feeling when the bottom has just fallen out of your world. Everything that has changed. This picture, I think, describes that feeling. (laughs) Suddenly, when you hold that child in your arms for the first time, everything that used to matter now doesn't. And things which hadn't mattered now mean everything. I couldn't care any longer what colour I was going to paint that wall. But I was interested to know which nappies did not cause my child bottom to chase. Is the gospel an add-on which fits seamlessly into your life? Maybe you've grown up in this church and you've just kind of accepted that the resurrection is there. The resurrection shatters your life. Even your good Christian upbringing lives, it shatters them. But it allows God to put it back together around him. Here's a possible response that you might want to make based on something that I'm, what I'm saying. Perhaps you've never considered the facts or had an experience of the resurrected Jesus. The invitation is now delve in a little deeper and invite him to show himself. Perhaps if you're saying that Jesus is Lord of all, if God is saying that Jesus is Lord of all, are you in agreement with God? If so, what does this mean in your life? Is your first question What pleases him? If he is my Lord, I live to serve him. 
If he is risen and Lord of all, does he have an opinion about my sex life? Does he have an opinion about how I use my money? Does he have an opinion how I spend my time? The resurrection puts all of that into a new context. Finally, you might think it's time to put the reality of the resurrection back in the centre of your faith. Tim Goddard, who was part of the church for a while, was the father to a child called Joshua who was born with cancer. We prayed and we battled for that boy for three and a half years before he died. And someone asked Tim, does this shake your faith? And Tim said, my faith is based on the fact that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Not based on if he answers my prayers. Is my faith based on the fact of the resurrection? Or is it based on if I'm getting the answers that I want today? And am I approaching life with an empty tomb mindset when it comes to things like despair, fear, suffering, or identity? Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk, on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.